0: Good everybody. Thank you very much, Kristen and the Praise Team. My sermon today is entitled No Liming in the Exit Row. When you get on a plane, right, you might have a preferred seat. Um, that is if you're in economy class like me, right? Um, so some people prefer an aisle seat. Because they want to go to the restroom anytime and they don't want to have to climb over other people to get there. Uh, some people prefer a window seat like me because it allows you to see what's going on going on outside of the plane. Um, especially if it's over the wing. Anyway, that's another story. Nobody likes the middle seat, right? Um, and then we have the exit row, right? The emergency exit row. It has the advantage of increased leg room. But as a drawback, the seat cannot recline. So before the safety briefing, often during check-in, before you even get on the plane, the airline personnel select who they want to put in that row. And um, they prefer able-bodied people, usually males, and they don't just go by your looks, right? They often ask you at the counter, and then again, when you're in the plane, the flight attendants will ask you again before the briefing if you're comfortable being in that row, because... The occupants of the emergency row have a special responsibility they have to be older than 15 years of age and they have to be able and willing to assist other passengers in the event of an emergency which is still unlikely statistically right so while other passengers might ignore the safety briefing passengers in the emergency row are asked to read the safety card so that they understand how to open the emergency doors in case of an emergency and clear the way for other passengers to leave and even assist if the pl- flight attendants are not capable. All right? And sometimes the flight attendants tell them this directly as well. So not just read the card, but they tell them how to open the door. So if you are a Seventh-day Adventist, you have been asked by God to sit in the emergency row. But this emergency is coming. It's not a possibility. It's, it's, it will happen. All right? It is not unlikely. It is certain. And if you are willing, then you have a responsibility to clear the emergency exit so that other people are able to pass. So today I want to speak about the realness of the emergency, and more importantly, of how we are to clear the exit and open the emergency doors. Okay, let us pray. Father in heaven, um, I just need your help. So if you can help me today, may your Holy Spirit help us to understand your word and to apply it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn to Genesis 11. We're going to read 1 to 9, and this is the story of the Tower of Babel. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1 to 9. So I will read, and you you will just follow along, right? Genesis 11, 1 to 9. Okay, and it says, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech, And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinah, and they dwelt there. And they said to one another, Go, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime they had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and and this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel. Because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from hence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of the earth. Now, this story comes right after the flood story, like immediately after the flood story. And in the flood story, God sees an issue with man's behavior, and he decides to do something about it. So the tower story has to be many years later, right, because the population of the earth is more than just the eight that came off the ark, right, at this time. But it's right after the flood story. And so we see the same pattern, all right, and we know that they're related. This tower of Babel was not just a random tower in the land of Shinar. This is where, by the way, Babylon would arise from, right? This tower represented two classes of people or two major attitudes among mankind. And you can see it in the way that they responded to the flood. So you have one response where they say, well, there's no God, so man has to make his own destiny. Let's make a name for ourselves. So let's come together and we'll survive. We'll make it. And then the other one, in the other attitude, there is a God, but we, mankind, will go up to meet him. So we, we too can reach where God is if we just pull together. All right. So that's the attitude coming out of the Tower of Babel. But the result is the same from both, right? What starts out as an ambitious project project to be like God or to be in God's place, and I want you to watch the pattern, results in an utter failure as God steps into his rightful place. So just like the statue in Daniel's dream, what starts out as the seemingly solid head of gold, right, that's Babylon, eventually cannot cleave together down at the base. So like iron and clay in the toes of the statue... The people cannot understand one another, and so they are scattered over the face of the earth. The tower is destroyed, man's plans are ruined. And we go around in circles like this all the time, ever since. So the very things that are supposed to save us fail us, or they end up being our undoing. There's a rise in technology. If you I think it's verse three, they said um they, basically what it said there is that instead of using stones to build, now they use bricks. They have bricks now and we have mortar. Um, which was tar in, in those days, right? So now this will be the ticket to a good life, right? And, um, of course, we fail and things fall apart. And so we do this over and over again. So one author, Paul Kingsnorth, has this to say about the story of progress. That's the story we tell ourselves, right? He says, what we say is this. It is possible through human ingenuity to create a utopia. We have a story that tells us that human beings started as ignorant savages and we are moving through a series of progressive steps in which at every point they get cleverer, they get richer, they get smarter, they develop technologies which allow them to live longer, they learn more. Eventually that ends with us probably leaving the planet and colonizing the stars or living forever or downloading our brains onto silicon chips. It's kind of a technological rapture that sees time in a linear fashion rather than a cycle. Right? It sees an endless series of steps, every one of which improves things in the material sense from the one before, and this attitude informs everything from our view of the past, which we increasingly believe was a savage place in which our lack of technology and science drove us to misery and poverty, to our view of the future in which we assume that more technology and more scientific focus and more centralization will take us to a kind of paradise. In other words, he's saying um, that what we have told ourselves is that with technology, things will get better and better forever and ever. And we even have, think we have evidence for this, as the past seems to be a terrible place full of wars and diseases and slavery and other backward things, right? But now things are better, yeah? What he argues is that by telling ourselves this myth, we destroy the very planet we are living on, since technology often strips away at the environment and destroys the earth. But more than technology, as we see in the Bible, the very sinful nature of man intervenes to mess up our march to glory, or what we think is glory. My point here is that many of us are caught up in the race to have a good life. And interestingly enough, the good life is often just the good enough life. We hold within ourselves this idea that things will be just fine, right? I'll be okay if I just have one or two pretty harmless things, maybe a house or a car, right? You can't have a problem with that. When I finish my degree, I'll be all set. So it may be a little bit more stable. I could just build, if I build two apartments, I could rent it out. And things will improve. But if you can find a nice, loyal person to love me, then things will get better. So the issue here is not the plans, but the level of comfort and trust we place in these things to move our lives forward. They have a word for that. It's called middle classness. We want to be middle class. All of us, we have to think very hard about this because it's really, really easy. Me too. You think it's very easy to sort of put comfort in achieving things that will make you just be a little better now. I don't have to worry, right? So you're back in the plane, and you remember that your odds of dying in a motor vehicle accident are 1 in 78 over a lifetime, while the odds of dying in a plane crash are 1 in 7,178 over a lifetime. So what's the big fuss? I don't have to really know how to operate the exit. The plane's not going to crash. I'm just here for the leg room. This is not proper emergency road thinking. And so many times, this trust we place in our plans removes from our mind the urgency of the second coming of Jesus and the end of the world. It places implicit faith in a world that is getting better and better. Every day after all, there's new technology, faster electronics, promise cures for diseases. You know. And I tell my students this. Um, now there are two people who they have found have been functionally cured of HIV. The first guy's name is Timothy Ray Brown, or the Berlin patient, and then they... Like a month ago, they published in the British, it was the British Medical Journal, another guy, they did the same treatment to sort of read his body. That's a whole class altogether, but to read his of the read um, body of the virus. So, you know, cures for diseases seem promising, right? Electric cars and solar panels. Things are faster and better, and, and, it's, and, it's, and when it's really nice, it's cheaper too, right? But I want to emphasize that the emergency is real and that the world is not as stable as we think. Neither is it marching towards success unfettered. Underneath the good or the good enough life is a very thin foundation that all the hopes and dreams of modern life are built on. Let just take the environment, for example. Many islands in the Pacific, um, like the Marshall Islands, I mean, the average elevation is six feet. And now they're in danger of disappearing soon because of rising sea levels. And you're talking about tens of thousands of people have to find a new place to live. And the people in one of the islands, Kiribati Island, they had to buy land space in Fiji because they expect to have to move within the next 30 years. All right, so the the sea levels, um, due to warming of the earth and the melting of the ice caps, um, this happening right now is not like a future thing, and they exp- they already have experienced loss of land, and not to mention the rising seawater means that they can't grow crops properly anymore. And then, of course, if you have a, uh, like a soakaway, it's filled with seawater now, and um, and then fresh water is hard to come by. and And you don't have to go to the Pacific. I mean, even in Miami Beach downtown, sometimes it floods when it doesn't when it doesn't rain because it's built on limestone, and the rising sea level sometimes the water comes up. Through the pavement, um, and these are the only the effects that we can see with our eyes. Now, not to mention that because the temperature of the ocean is rising, that means that um, this affects entire economies that are based on fishing. And all of this is driven by our desire to get better. We make, we do things, and we produce more carbon dioxide. So our progress is bringing us down. And then we have. Um, colony collapse disorder, the bees, many of the bees that pollinate a lot of the fields in the United States are just dying mysteriously. We don't know why. They think it may be a combination of different factors, um, different pesticides. Um, And then pharmaceutical chemicals from our own bodies, from hospitals, from factories, end up in the water system. And so that affects animals in unpredictable ways. And they had an article this month in The the Atlantic about how um, platypuses In some models, they have every day they get about half the recommended dosage of antidepressants in their their body. Like they absorb it from the environment and their food, half the adult male dosage. All right? Um, and, and, And antidepressants affect fish as well, and it affects how they migrate. So you can see that there's like a perfect storm of unintended consequences, bring. And then we have superbugs. right? Superbugs are bacteria that, sometimes fungi, that have managed to. Um, become resistant to our most powerful antibiotics. So there's one called Candida auris. And that one just started um, appearing in hospitals. And it's so bad, they have to rip out fixtures and ceiling tiles to get rid of of it. Because they're not quite sure where it lives. And this is not a new fungus, right? Popular science was saying that um, when you use antifungals in, in agriculture to help your crops... This, this um, fungus was out there in the wild, just getting used to that, whatever we were spraying it with. And then it became potent enough to sort of infect human beings, and all of a sudden, we can't get rid of it, right? So my point here, again, is to show that what we see as progress for a better and better world is not so. And, um, you know, oh, yes, nice antifungals for agriculture, but look what it has done to us. And now by... 2050, they expect 10 million people to die every year from these types of hard-to-cure bacterial infections. And then we could even talk about social and political upheaval, and we're right next door to our friends in Venezuela. They're having some challenges. Put it lightly, right? Um, but we have on he's here in our own country as we realize that this idea that we'll progress and we'll get better and better is a myth because it's harder and harder to be able to afford a house anywhere in Trinidad or to buy land if you want, right? And then money doesn't buy as much as it used to, and many jobs, let's say in the energy sector, would seem secure before, they don't exist anymore, and if you're qualified, you may not even find a job. And on and on. I mean, in the United States, you have the collapse of... So ever since we, dis- we, we discovered like germs and what germs are, because before people didn't know anything about germs, they thought disease was spread by something in the air, some bad air called miasma, right? And then we learned that there are these things called germs and that they get you sick. So ever since then, human beings have been living longer and longer. But for the last two years in the United States, something strange has been happening. White males have been... Their life expectancy has been decreasing two years in a row. And this is driven by... Well, loss of so because of a loss of jobs, they call it deaths of despair, suicide, and drugs. All right, and of course, when there all these all this economic despair, people are clamoring and they're looking for somebody to blame. Blame the immigrants. They get it first all the time, right? And then, even though American incomes have risen only five percent since 1960, rents have risen 61 percent. So now there's an epidemic of homelessness and all the while that is happening between 2017 and 2018 according to oxfam a new billionaire was created every two days and as it stands now the 26 richest people in the world have more assets than the poorest 3.8 billion you hear that 26 people are worth more than half the rest of the world how long can we keep this up so it's not a steady march for the human glory things are tenuous as William Butler Yeats said in his poem, The Second Coming, things fall apart, the center cannot hold. One day we travel from, with ease from place to place, but within a few years we are taking off our belts and shoes in the airport and under surveillance and by the authorities, all in the name of safety. And we may coast along with some sort of ease, but the foundation of the world is it's not sustainable, it can't hold us up. Fifteen years ago, social media did not exist now it permeates our lives and teaches us how to be disconnected and withdrawn, how to laugh at videos of other people's misfortune, how to covet other people's bodies and lifestyles, and how to misrepresent ourselves to the world. Conversations are no longer face to face, so now we get used to being rude and nasty and mean and mocking to people. And so, what's going to happen when we start to grow up like this? Right? What's going to happen? One shake can collapse the entire table. It's a, it's, a, it's a sudden thing it's not it's, it, the end can happen at any time that's what I'm trying to show you in 1986 there was a um, lake in Cameroon I can't remember the name of the lake right? but um, this lake was very strange it's a volcanic lake and it's kind of deep so carbon dioxide seeps up into the water at the bottom of the lake but because it's so slow and because there's so much water the carbon dioxide stays at the bottom of the lake and one day something could have been a tremor or a rock falling into the lake, um, something disturbed that order, and all the carbon dioxide that was dissolved, turned into gas, and it rose up out of the lake, it formed like a column of air, well it would be CO2, 100 feet high, and then it, it, it like went downhill through several valleys in Cameroon, and killed about 1,300 people, because if Depending on how much um, CO2 there is in the air, it displaces the oxygen. So some people, they woke up and realized that most of their family members, and not to mention cattle, were dead. So just like that, everything just changed. I'm just trying to get to understand that the world is not, okay, we have some time again. It's not like that. It's At any moment, it could just change on us. The Bible says in 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And those are the things that catch us, especially the pride of life, good living, living it up in the exit row, trying to get as comfortable as possible on a doomed plane. But secretly, nobody wants to occupy the exit row. Instead, everybody wants to travel first class. And no wonder it is stated in Amos 6.1, Woe to them that are at ease in Zion and trust in the mountain of Samaria. We have been called to sit in the exit row, but we'd rather be in first class. People know the world is falling apart, and the stresses of the world have pushed people into all sorts of solutions that ultimately cannot give them hope. We know where the exits are because we are sitting right next to them. Some of us refuse the extra responsibility, and others take the seat anyway, and we have no desire to help anybody in case of an emergency trying to recline or be at ease in a seat that cannot recline. Yes, we'd rather be in first class. Coming out of 1 John 2.16, we can see that there are many coping mechanisms to which people, without hope and knowledge, gravitate, including sex, drugs, mysticism, and wealth, entertainment, good living. In this environment, our unique doctrines and beliefs are not here to make us peculiar or to secure our own personal salvation, but rather they put us in a unique place to be able to help people get ready to make the final decision and to avoid the final deceptions. You're not in the exit row to save yourself. The help message we have been ordained to proclaim, and the Sabbath speak to an increasingly diseased world with broken environmental and human relations. We always knew the Sabbath was more than just a book today. In the Old Testament, following seven Sabbaths of years, we had the year of Jubilee, which brought freedom for slaves and the return of property to the original owners. This is a direct message of hope and restoration that should propel us as we seek to restore the image of God in mankind and prepare the way for Jesus to return. We do the Sabbath an injustice when we have no answer to the bondage and brokenness that our neighbors and co-workers find themselves in. How can we rest on the Sabbath day when they have no rest in Jesus Christ? When they cannot count on us to pray for them and to encourage them, Jesus' heart burned with compassion for others. You know, sometimes you have an aunt, it's usually an aunt or a grandmother, who when they hear about a child in distress They spend money, they don't have to help the child. No, the child, the child has to get books. And it's not even their child, right? And they want, so we see people living their lives. They're co-workers and they're living just real, struggling and they're living terrible lives and we are there, and something has to tell you in your mind, you have to say something like, nah man, they can't be living like that. I have to do something. If it's pray, I have to pray, but I have to do something, it has to bother you. How could you just live next to them and see them live like this and not do anything? We have been assigned to the exit row, but we'd rather be in first class. Another great deception, one of the greatest deceptions, we hardly have people talk about this, that will proliferate in the final crisis will be the signs and wonders that the enemy, the devil and his angels, will be working. Even now, there's a renewed interest in the supernatural and calling on spirits to bring healing or prosperity or revenge. We see the ads in the papers, and if we listen carefully um, to associates and co-workers will realize how widespread it is. I have a class of 15 children. And, you know, every time we talk and we talk about God, and sometimes the, the conversation always comes back to um, the supernatural and all these experiences they've been having and, 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 and what happened to the aunt and the mom. This is, these are things that happen to people. We have a unique place with our knowledge of the state of the dead to help these people to be able to avoid deception. I have a student... Well, a past student, right, left school a little while back, who went into a, 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 kind of a bad life. At one point, I went to see his father after he had left school, and the father said, well, he's a gangster now, you know. So he had sort of washed his hands, right? He left school. He didn't have anything. And, um, but he decided for various reasons, and God is good, to start, sort of turn his life around. So he had come and met me, and he had talked, and I had his number. So one day I'm going through WhatsApp, you know, I guess wasting time, watching statuses, right? And there he puts up a picture of his dead brother. His brother died years before I met him. It says many years now. And he puts underneath it, he writes, Was that you who, who was calling me last night? So... I said, um, so I replied, the Lord helped me, right? I said it in a better way. But I said, that is not your brother. And then I was able to show him things that he was not aware of then. I showed him one or two texts, but the way the Lord helped me, uh, he was able to understand that that was not his brother. You know, he told me that he followed the voice and he was at work and he ended up in some place on work he was not supposed to be. So many people are going to, many people will be sitting ducks because we don't tell them anything, all right? There are widespread superstitions about dreams, even in, in, in Trinidad culture, maybe West Indian culture, a lot of people have dreams, not all dreams are from the Lord, um, we had a neighbor right. whose, um, whose son got murdered, and I remember him once saying to us, um, he, he, he talks to me. I, when I dream, he comes and he tells me things. He tells me not to worry. I started praying pray one time. I said, Lord, no, 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 you can't be dreaming that. I started praying and I said, Lord, take away those dreams. I remember, well, I never told him that, right? But I started to pray about that, you know? So, and then on the other hand, and, and so the culture is, is, is worse now. Now we make fun of it. We make fun of super- We had a family in South being terrorized by the devil and his minions um, a few months ago, weeks ago. And that was all of our social media. People are laughing. And guess who lined up to provide solutions for the people? Every charlatan and witch doctor in the, in the country was lining up behind. So this one wanted to go and perform that ritual and that ritual. So you realize that the place is falling apart. And who is offering solutions? Romans 8, 18 to 25 says in part, I'm going to read from the Phillips Version. It says... In my opinion, whatever we may have to go through now is less than nothing compared with the magnificent future God has planned for us. The whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. The world of creation cannot as yet see reality, not because it chooses to be blind, but because in God's purpose it has been so limited, yet it has been given hope. And the hope is that in the end, the whole of created life will be rescued from the tyranny of change and decay, and have it share in that magnificent liberty, which can only belong to the children of God. It is plain to anyone with eyes to see that at the present time, all created life groans in a sort of universal travail. So people are looking for hope. The world is creaking, it's falling apart. People are looking for hope, and there are real consequences for the ignorance, for the ignorance that they live in. So you cannot be in the exit row for your own comfort and your own safety. The Bible is not primarily a book about how you can save yourself and your family from destruction. That's not even the main point of the Bible. The main point of the Bible is to reveal the character of God and to provide evidence of his trustworthiness. Furthermore, it reveals his intentions to reconcile the entire universe to himself and to heal it of the effects of sin. So now God has invited us to be a part of this project to help recreate and to restore the image of God in man. And we have to keep that in mind. It's a big project we're on. You know, God has a mission and he's asking, are you coming or are you not coming? And we have to decide if we want to be on that. It is through that mission. When we embark on that mission with God, that is how we are saved. So it's not about, um, I have this for myself and well, the rest of them, well, hard luck. It's not about that. We are saved through working with God to help restore the world. The last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. The children of God are to manifest his glory in their own life and character. They are to reveal what the grace of God has done for them. That's Christ's subject lesson, page four, fifteen to 16. The exit row, therefore, is not a place to hang out or lime, as it were. The flight attendant asks, ask, if you are seated next to an emergency exit, please read carefully the special instruction card located by your seat. You do not, if you do not wish to perform the functions described in the event of an emergency, please ask a flight attendant to reseat you. Hear the word of the Lord. Ezekiel 33 9 says, So are you, O Son of Man, I have set you a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore, you shall hear the word from my mouth and warn them from me. When I say unto the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die. If you does not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked of his way to turn from it, if he do not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. You have been chosen to sit next to the emergency exit. In fact, you are in the aisle, but your heart is in first class where you'd rather be. Remember Jonah? Jonah was sleeping in first class while the ship was tossing to and fro, right, heading to shipwreck. Sitting next to an emergency exit, but not reading the special instructions card, the, the Bible. Not knowing and not caring to know what the passengers on board need to do to escape the wreck alive or to tell them. Now is no time to be wishing to be in first class. Unless you and I relay the instructions, we and the passengers will all perish when the plane gets wrecked. Our journey through life from day to day, whether at home or at school or at work or at play, is God's call to sit next to the emergency exit. Not for liming, not to be at ease, hence the reason the seat can't recline, but for reading the instructions, for performing the functions described in the card, in the Bible, not for sitting and wishing we were in first class. We have heard the message. You have been reminded that you have been selected. The plane is headed for a crash landing, And you have been placed in the exit for such a time as this. You have the special instructions in the Bible and the ministry of the Spirit of Prophecy. I hope that each of us is willing and able to perform the functions described in the event of this emergency. Happy Sabbath.